Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm Darcy Staniforth, an American Studies scholar and lecturer, but I also love to explore the paranormal. On this podcast, we explore the paranormal, but also the occult, the strange, and the unknown as we try and decode the mysteries around these topics. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we're decoding the Montauk Project, time travel, and mind control with author, producer, and screenwriter Marie D. Jones and Montauk investigator Brian Minnick. I talked to these two guests about the mysteries that surround these fascinating topics. But first, a few notes about this episode. First off, we want to acknowledge that the land that Camp Hero is built upon is land that originally belonged to the Montauk people. Second, this episode almost became its own conspiracy. From strange messages and disappearing guests to sound issues and people leading us down rabbit holes in our research, we are so happy to finally bring you this episode. I thought time travel was weird. Oh, you are not wrong about that. Believe it. Believe it. My first guest today is Marie D. Jones. Marie is an author, screenwriter, and producer. She and I sat down and talked about the Montauk Project, time travel, and mind control. I am so excited that we have author, producer, screenwriter, Marie D. Jones. She is the author of over 20 nonfiction books, including This Book is from the Future and Mind Wars, Who's Been Watching You from the Shadows. So welcome, Marie. It's great to see you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited. Yeah. This is this is an exciting time and a long time coming. So uh, and great to have another lady on the podcast. Exactly, women <laughs> power. <laughs> Woohoo! I am so glad that today we're going to talk about things like the Montauk Project and Ooh. time travel and mind control <laughs> and all of these interesting things. So this is really exciting. So can we start first? Can you tell me how did you get how did you get started in writing about such amazing and varying topics. Oh, gosh. I've been odd since birth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, you know, I remember even as a toddler that I was into things like Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts. And I have no idea, you know, where I had gotten those ideas so early in my life. All through my childhood, I was either writing or telling ghost stories. I was obsessed with UFOs. I was certain that Bigfoot lived in the woods behind our house in Garnerville, New York, and that I had actually seen him, although everybody told me it was probably our neighbor who was quite a hairy man. But uh, <laughs> the thing is, I, I just, I loved to read. I knew I was going to be a writer from the start because I was always reading everything I could get my hands on, fiction and nonfiction, going to the library because that was, you know, dinosaur days before the internet. And just coming home with stacks fulls of books on all kinds of different subjects. So I started writing and getting paid for it when I was a teenager. I have a journalism background in high school and into college. And I just realized that that was my big fascination, the paranormal conspiracies, unknown anomalies. And here I was writing and I figured, oh, hmm, maybe it's kind of time to merge the two. <laughs> So when we were chatting a little bit before we sat down to really have this interview, 
You had mentioned that you had recently been going down a Montauk project rabbit hole. So first for our audience, can you give a little brief description about the Montauk project? And then also what got you interested in going down the Montauk project rabbit hole? So most people, unless you're one of us paranormal conspiracy types, most people have been introduced to this subject matter via pop culture. Sure. And Stranger Things, Netflix, a very successful show, is probably how they got introduced. So that show, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers in case you never watched it and you'd like to, but that show basically was originally titled Montauk by the two creators. And they ended up changing it, not just the title, but the location. But they based it on an actual, and I hate to use the word conspiracy because there's an awful lot of truth. I always say where there's smoke, there's fire. And conspiracy theories to me are the fire, and you have to go find where the smoke is. Based on actual experimentation that occurred from World War II on, mainly through the 60s and 70s, probably still is occurring, underground beneath the Camp Hero Air Force Base, which is at the the, uh, very tip of Montauk and Long Island. So actually, it was a naval air station. So if you were to go to Camp Hero today, because it's been, everything's been decommissioned, what you would see is a really nice park, a public park, and you can go walking and you can go jogging and I don't know if if you could swim in the ocean water there, but it's just absolutely beautiful, very serene. There's a lighthouse at the very end. But during World War II, it was considered one of the most important bases because of its location and the ability for their radar. They had a very they have a very big radar dish to give warning to ships and to give warning to the folks on land of what was coming. It was really, really critical to the war effort. Well, supposedly, (laughs) it was... There's the key word, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there you go. So supposedly, you know, after World War II, it was decommissioned. Sometime later, it became a national park. Blah, blah, blah. Everything gets shut down. If you go there and if you can get inside the fence line, which, believe it or not, is still secured. There are still military personnel that will come and tell you, you know, no, you can't come in, which is really interesting for a decommissioned base. Yeah, if it's decommissioned, why are we guarding it? Yeah. What What are the secrets? And I know people, and I don't know them personally, but I know of people that just a couple of years ago attempted to get in, and they were approached by somebody. So it's still, you know, there's still something going on there. So apparently Montauk is considered a dumb. A dumb is a deep underground military base. But if you were to look at blueprints of the radar tower and the top above ground construction on Montauk, you will not see any sign of anything underground. In the 1980s, a man named Preston Nichols wrote a book in 1982, to be exact, called the Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. And this kind of started a whole firestorm of interest in the subject matter because Mr. Nichols claimed that he saw the Philadelphia Experiment movie and it helped jiggle up and recover some repressed memories he had about 
working in this mysterious underground setting, doing experiments. He was an electrical engineer and supposedly he was involved in helping to build some of the alleged equipment that was used on these experiments. Now, once that happened, it sort of opened up a door. More people started coming forward to either corroborate what he said or say that, oh yeah, as a child, I was in one of those underground rooms. I was being experimented on. And what was going on at Montauk specifically was using children from the ages of six on, maybe 13, 14, 15, in time travel experiments, psychometry experiments, LSD experiments, mind control experiments, you name it. Part of the reasoning of using children was, well, their brains are, we can shape and we can form them. And one of the things that they did is they deprogrammed everything. They scrubbed the memories in these children's brains so that they could then program in whatever it was that they wanted to. And that's where the mind control aspect came in. So that's one set of experiments. And that tended to be the one that was the most brutal from what I understand. The time travel experiments involved a very unique piece of furniture called the Montauk chair. And this chair allegedly had all kinds of electrodes and and meters and things that they would hook the child up to. And it would create a sort of electromagnetic alteration that could then project them either into the past or the future. And I've heard some of the people that claim to have been in that chair refer to it as mental time travel, but that it was also taking them in a sort of physical way so that they could look around and say, oh, you know, here here are my surroundings, and then you'd go back and corroborate it. So you also had another device called a chronovisor. Chronovisor allowed these people to look into the past and the future. So that was another of the time travel. And then you had the LSD experiments. So beneath the surface level of Montauk were what are called acid rooms. And these are rooms that have been photographed and videotaped by people who have gotten at least down to the basement level. And I've seen pictures and videos of them. And these rooms are painted really weird colors and and patterns, almost psychedelic. And it is alleged that the kids were given LSD, thrown into these rooms, and monitored. And that's part of what the program was looking into. And from what we understand, they went a little too far in a lot of cases. And, you know, I don't think every Montauk boy survived. We certainly only have a handful that have come forward and claimed that they were, had been experimented on. Well, you know, what happened to the rest of them? So there's also a teleporter and a jump room that were located below ground. These were not things that were located on the surface. If they were, we'd, the people that have snuck beyond the fence line would easily be able to see them. And so these involved uh, manipulating energy fields, electromagnetic energy, to allow someone to literally jump from one time 
timeline, time frame to another. Supposedly, we got this technology from extraterrestrials. And there is a belief that on one of those nine or more levels at Montauk was a a back-engineered UFO, UFO technology that was being experimented on. And I have heard even the gray aliens themselves that they were part of the process. So there was... Well, someone someone had to t- show us how to use the technology, right? Yeah. Like you can't, you don't just aren't given the yeah, technology. True. And this Preston Nichols, I haven't read the book yet. I, I actually have the book, but I've seen some documentaries and he was pretty brilliant. But even he had admitted that, you know, he didn't know how to recreate this kind of technology. This is where I think about the concept of mind control, because obviously you touched on a lot of different uh, experiments. Uh, well, I haven't told you the worst, so maybe we should okay. mention that one real quick. Yes, please. <laughs> Supposedly, one of the Montauk boys by the name of Duncan Cameron was so powerful psychically that when they put him in the Montauk chair, he was able to manifest some kind of interdimensional monster, an interdimensional entity that then went crazy, broke out through the lab or whatever, did a lot of damage. And that was one of the trigger points to alert the people behind all of this that maybe things have gone too far. So the Montauk monster is just so fascinating. And for those of you that watch Stranger Things, you will notice an exact correlation with that. But that's when they decided to shut it down. He full on Obi-Wan me. It's mind control, man. So, Marie, I wanted to go back a little bit and talk to you about the idea of mind control, because one of the things I love so much that you and Larry do in Mind Wars is you talk about the difference between this pop culture idea of mind control versus the reality and the fact that like mind control isn't about a ray gun being beamed into our head but instead it happens on a much subtler level. Yeah, absolutely. There's different techniques and tools that, and the thing about mind control is we use this stuff in our everyday behavior with our fellow human beings. You know, you say mind control and people flip out. They think you're talking about some Twilight Zone episode where, you know, somebody puts on a weird helmet and the other guy can read his mind. But the truth is, is that we use a lot of these psychological and emotional techniques with each other. They are used in cults. And obviously with the cults, they don't hit you with it all right away, right? They're not coming exactly. out with the big guns immediately <laughs> going like, no, here it run. all is. Because <laughs> they want to get off. you in, yeah. right? Exactly. And you think about things, I know um, that you touch, you know, you start the chapter in Mind Wars about Jonestown with the yeah. excerpt from Jim Jones's speech. At, like his suicide note, you know, and and here are these people that in that trusted this man in good faith and trusted that this is what they were doing and it destroyed their lives. It did. And I met a couple of years ago at a book event. I met one of the nurses who escaped Guiana. Oh, wow. And she's written a couple of books on her experiences. And, we, you know, we talked a little bit because I'm absolutely fascinated by cults. And she said, in the beginning, Jim Jones came across as a really good, 
decent person who cared about the poor, who wanted to feed people, wanted to clothe people and take care of people. So those that went, you know, followed him, went to his church and heard him preach, they thought he was a really good guy. Now, once you, they get that positive connection, they might start slipping some little behavioral things in, maybe some things that they say or do, and you kind of look at it like, uh, oh, that doesn't quite feel right. Oh, but you know what? He's a really good guy. He just fed 25,000 people. So you ignore those little red flags. And my gosh, don't we do this in romantic relationships too? You ignore those little red flags. You're getting sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where psychologically and emotionally, you become totally addicted. You become a part of their ideology. You become a part of that family bonding. You begin to lose the ability to discern truth from the rhetoric and dogma and, you know, basic BS that they're feeding you. Now we have social networking, which is full of propaganda. And you might not always recognize it. It doesn't always have to be evil or sinister, but we're constantly being toyed with. We're having our emotions played upon. The media will spin news and information to their benefit or the benefit of whoever pays their bills and buys advertising on their channel. We're constantly bombarded with things that our minds are beginning to accept as normal, even though the little red flags are waving, even though when we, when we get quiet, we listen to that voice of discernment within it saying, no, you know, no, abort, abort mission. We don't listen to it enough anymore. So it becomes much easier now to control people than it ever has been before. I went back in time and created an alternate timeline, a whole new existence. So speaking of social media and how we can easily be manipulated by it, we do have a question from the Twitterverse for you. At Kevin Levitt asks, do you believe all time travel is possible or can we only go into the past because it's already happened or only into the future because it's unknown. Gee, thanks, Kevin, for such a simple <laughs> Just a simple question. <laughs> Do you like red or blue or green? Right. So I love, I love thinking about this. I, I this is going to be a really weird answer. Yes, I, I love believe it. it's Let's possible. Do it. I believe it's possible all, you know, past, present, future, you name it. And the reason why is because we know that outside of the construct of our human brain out there in the greater cosmos, there's no such thing as linear time. Linear time is something that we, our brains need in order to give order to chaos, whatever. So there's no linear time out there. In the quantum world, there's no such thing as linear time. And in fact, in the quantum world, we as the observer have the ability to change the future and past outcomes of a particle's behavior. We know all that stuff. However, on the larger scale, one of the things that you have to think about is as the observer, because of the observer effect, because we have been told that the observer, whether it's a human or a, a piece of measuring equipment, because that itself acts as an observer, does the presence of an observer change the outcome of the past if you were to travel back. 
people say, well, we could go back and maybe I could, you know, stop uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And Stephen King wrote a wonderful book called 112263 that brings up all of the paradoxes. He did, he had somebody actually do amazing research uh, into time travel, into the different paradoxes and problems and challenges. The book is fabulous. The question that it asks is if you go back into the past and you change something, you're literally unraveling the fabric of the present and the future. Okay? Absolutely. People will say, well, what if I just go back and observe? I just want to go back and see. I want to see what Jesus was like. You know, he's a cool dude. I'm sorry, but because of the observer effect, just the sheer fact that you're observing, it's a type of measurement. It influences the outcome of what's happening at that event. So here's where you get the really cool idea like the many worlds theory, parallel universes, parallel timelines. Is it possible to go back in time, change something, and then have that universe continue on with the change sort of enforced and how it would play out in the present and future? And from that breaks off another universe where things are the same as they were. And then another universe, the many worlds interpretation says that there can be an infinite number of universes that break off on the basis of one decision that you make. Mm -hmm. So everything is then possible. There's the grandfather paradox that says that if you go back in time and you kill your grandfather before he has a chance to give birth to your father or mother and they, you know, do the dirty deed and you're born, <laughs> you won't exist, right? Well, a way around that paradox is the many worlds interpretation or the idea of parallel universes and timelines that are created on the basis of a decision that we make. Going into the future, it's the same thing. As an observer, because we know there's no such thing as linear time out in the greater cosmic landscape, if you go into the future and you see something you don't like, <clears throat> excuse me, and you try to change it, you're basically putting all of those same things into play. Sure. So it's possible if we also say that some of these other theories are possible. Otherwise, it seems like, you know, our, our very presence would mess things up. Now, going back to Montauk, one of the things that they were trying to achieve was a Stargate. Google Project Looking Glass, people, this gets really down into a deeper, deeper rabbit hole. Project Looking Glass is something that many of the people that were involved in these experiments, they called them chrononauts, that sat in that chair, that used the chronovisor, were told that they were a part of or found out they were a part of later on. And the whole point of Project Looking Glass was the ability to somehow manipulate the electromagnetic field around a person to cause them to be able to look into the past or the future. And in doing so, to then be able to take that information and apply it to, you know, whether a, a defensive or offensive purpose, whatever was needed. Um, so that's the real long answer to that question. That's a great answer to that question, though, because, again, this is where these are where these rabbit holes that we go down. Right. Because it's yeah. like, wait a second. I've never heard about that theory. And I've never heard about that theory. 
And you're talking about the observer. It even makes me think about the idea how group dynamics change, right? How does your family interact when you're there versus when you're not there? How does your group of friends interact when that one friend comes out? Like all of those things change our every day. So why wouldn't you coming uh, in and out of different times? And I also love the idea that for people who are like, well, I'd just go back and observe. You would be losing your mind if you time traveled. You'd be like, oh my gosh, guess who that is? Yeah, like Um, you're going to sit still. Yeah, like you're going to sit still. (laughs) And I also, I I always laugh because I feel like nobody, nobody goes back and is like, everyone, you know, I would go back and stop this assassination or I'd stop this person. Nobody seems to want to go back and just hang out with their grandma. Exactly. You know? Well, you brought up something interesting. In the Stephen King novel, it's about the JFK assassination. So one of the problems that this brings into play is that we have no idea the butterfly effect that one action leads to, the ripple effect. So let's say you go back into time. Your goal is to kill Adolf Hitler before he can carry out his final solution. But in doing so, you allow someone to live. And this is not my thing. I I actually remember reading this somewhere and just having my mind blown. So if you stop Hitler from doing what he did, what if one of those people who lives was then going to go on later to become a powerful world leader and literally uh, get us into nuclear war and we all died? Now, there's a real dilemma there because morally and ethically, if you had the chance to kill someone as awful as Adolf Hitler, you would do it. But to understand how interconnected everything is and how one action leads to another and there is that ripple effect, there is that that butterfly effect that the flapping of a butterfly's wings in one half of the world can cause a hurricane in you know, the other half of the world. What if in doing something that you thought was moral and ethical, you actually created something even more horrendous? And, oh, my God, my mind was so blown by that. I thought, what would I do? What would I do? I'd probably kill Hitler because it would feel like the right thing to do. Um, But that's another dilemma because we don't really understand, you know, maybe in another timeline someone can kill Hitler and avoid all of the, the violence and death and things would work out fine. But what if in this timeline it didn't? Now, I have a question for you. Have you yourself ever experienced a time slip? Yes. Oh, so tell us about your time slip. It was more like missing time. Um, Okay. I had two hours of missing time many years ago. I lived in Los Angeles. I was heavily involved in UFO and abduction research at the time. I had two hours. I was on my way to see Carl Sagan speak at a Planetary Society convention. And I was on the Glendale Freeway, the 134 heading east to JPL. So when I was leaving my apartment, which was in North Hollywood, I couldn't get out the door. The doorknob wouldn't turn. I would open the door. It would slam right closed. There was like a force keeping me from getting out the door. And my husband at the time said, you know what? Maybe you're not meant to go. Maybe you better stay home. And I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm I'm going to see Carl Sagan. (laughs) Oh, hell yeah. Hello. And so I went and I'm on the freeway. We lived in Burbank. So just a short, I I was passing the two, 
which goes up to Sacramento, if I remember correctly. I lost two hours time, came to, I was north, heading north on the two, no idea where I was, no idea what had happened in two hours, nowhere near where I needed to go to see Carl Sagan, obviously, you know, missed that boat. This was at the time when we had those big clunky, cell phones had just come on the market and you could literally take one by the antenna and kill somebody with it. There were great weapons. I pulled over, called my husband. I was panicked, frantic, panicked. He said, get off the freeway, find the on-ramp, coming south, come back. Okay, I got home later, absolute panic, went right to bed, just shaking. All right, got over that. Several years later, so about two years ago, I did a radio show with Ann Stryber. It was before she passed away, Whitley Stryber's wife. I think you know who Whitley is. He wrote Communion. Yes. The book Communion. Okay. So he, he, his wife and I were very good friends. I did a show with her and uh, the other host was Starfire Tour. I think that was her name. And this came up and I said, oh, I had, you know, a couple hours missing time. And they said, Marie, do you realize that at that time, that area that you had your missing time in was a hotbed of abduction activity? What? <laughs> and I said, um, no. And I don't want to know. (laughs) About a year later, I told the story on another radio show, and the two hosts challenged me to go have a hypnotic regression (laughs) and then come come back on and tell them what happened. And I said, no. First of all, I don't feel like anything happened. I don't really know that I want to. My life is perfectly fine the way it is. That's fair. So that's missing time. Now, I've had time slips in that I've experienced uh, distortions, and that happens a lot. I also have a lot of deja vu, mm-hmm. and I have also experienced the Mandela effect several times, which is, for people that don't know, um, it's named after Nelson Mandela. A lot of people that claim that they saw a news story years ago that he had died in prison, but it turned out he hadn't. And there were a number of different experiences where large numbers of people would feel that they had seen something or experienced something. And then later they find out, no, well, that didn't happen. So it's a weird sort of maybe time timeline, parallel universe anomaly there where, you know, in one universe, Nelson Mandela did die. In this one, he didn't. So I've had a lot of those weird experiences But that missing time was really creepy. Hey, another great mystery in your life. Yes. Well, Marie, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me today here on the Mysteries Decoded podcast about MKUltra, the Montauk Project, time travel, mind control, and all kinds of amazing things. I really appreciate it. I had a blast. Thank you so much. And I know we probably took people down several rabbit holes and, you know, I'm more than willing, if people want to reach out via email on my website, to answer questions that may have arisen, (laughs) because I think we really covered a lot of ground, but it was great fun. Thank you. You're so welcome. Our next guest is Brian Minnick. Brian is a local Montauk investigator, and he appeared on the Montauk Experiments episode of the Mysteries Decoded television show. Brian has been investigating Camp Hero for years, and we sat down and talked about his research surrounding the Montauk Project. This right here is the piece of equipment that they say helped with time travel. 
Joining me now on this episode of the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we have Brian Minnick, web developer, search engine optimizer, but most importantly, Montauk project researcher and investigator. Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast, Brian. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Darcy. I appreciate it. Nice to make your acquaintance. And um, I really appreciate you having me on. So as a kid, you would take day trips out to Montauk. Yes. But what was it about the idea of this project that really captured your attention and started driving this passion to research and investigate the Montauk Project and Camp Hero? Oh, good question. I think the original, the attraction originally, it's just, it was a slew of everything, science fiction, conspiracy, um, everything you could imagine thrown into this one story. So when we, you know, we knew there was a possibility to go into some underground tunnels and find this radar, it was just a giant radar, and uh, just the ghost town ambience of the place. It's uh, almost a haunted ambience. As soon as you go there, you can feel it's just something that, you, you know, it's very mysterious. Seems like um, somebody's watching you at all times. And, uh, you know, it's very quiet, but then once in a while you'll hear tire tracks coming in. You just want to, you got to hide, you know. Back then you had to sneak in by parking at the lighthouse and walking a couple miles into the base to get to the radar. Nowadays you can pull right up to the radar into the parking lot, but Back then, you really had to be on your toes and look out for security. So the whole thing was very exciting, and um, we knew nothing about the base at the time. I didn't know any of the military history that I know now, so I didn't know what the buildings were for and anything about anything. So everything was new and exciting, and um, it was risky. And there was just, you know, it was like, what wasn't there to like about if you were into uh, any kind of urban exploring or just any kind of adventure, mystery and at the time, we were 15, 16 years old. It was our senior year, you know, so we would kind of like ditch school and go out there, a whole bunch of people. And uh, it was just a great time. And the more we got into it, the more we kept finding, then it, it became more serious. And we started really investigating it with a more serious tone instead of just going to a place to just go and, uh, you know, kick around all day. This Now we were starting to take pictures and uh, write down you know, each trip and what we found and which position the radar was in and what kind of security we encountered and everything that we could, you know, start to write down about it. In researching the Montauk Project for so many years, did you ever have a chance to interact with Preston Nichols directly or Peter Moon? Yes, actually both Preston Nichols, Peter Moon, Alfred Bielek, and Duncan Cameron, all four. Um, it was a bookstore called Mind, Body, and Soul in Huntington, New York, which is up Westmore. There was something called the Montauk Night there where you would buy tickets and you would go watch a lecture. I think in 1994, we started reading the book and we saw an ad somewhere for this Montauk meeting. So we, we missed the first one, but a couple friends and I went and we sat in attendance. We brought some pictures of the radar at different angles because people used to say, you know, that it didn't turn. So we had pictures of it all facing different angles in different positions. And uh, at the end, we got to speak with Preston about the position of the radar and some other things. And um, the, the following year, uh, 95 sometime, we went to another uh, Montauk meeting and with a different set of friends and we had, you know, more questions. And they actually wrote about us in the second Montauk book and also in some of the, uh, there was a newsletter in the Montauk Pulse, I think it was called. And I have those newsletters uh, where they mentioned some of the reportings. We found a local meter back then that was uh, an analog meter, kind of like what we found on the show now. 
it was something somebody broke and then it was replaced uh, only about a few months later. And um, we would report our findings to them and then they would write about it either, you know, in the newsletter or the book. We were excited to see it in the book. And, you know, you bring up the meters and the meters were such an interesting thing because, you know, Joe, who does maintenance at Camp Hero, it's like there's no maintenance done on the radar tower. Yes. So if there's no maintenance done, why do they have to keep replacing the meters? That's a great point. It has to have some kind of working electricity, I guess, available for maintenance. But if nobody there is actually doing the maintenance, how do they even know that they need a, a new meter? Or <laughs> yeah, it's it's very. There's something else going on there for sure. Um, we had a friend when they had the analog meter. We took pictures of it, and we had a friend run. His dad worked at LIPA, which was Loco at the time. Uh, we had him run. What is LIPA? Oh, it's the Long Island Power Authority at the time. His father worked there, and we had him run the little number on the blue tag. And what he came up with uh, was restricted, which means uh, he couldn't even get the information off of it. That's very interesting. Yeah. And um, some kids who lived on the base, uh, they lived at base housing, which is a small little, it's a small neighborhood, some trailers and um, some houses, I believe, attached to the base. It was once part of the military base housing. So we met a whole bunch of kids that lived there. They were kind of wild, actually. <laughs> and they, they told us that one of them had did, broke the meter in some way, I think, the glass on the front. And they told us not but a month later it was repaired again and fixed. So, You know, a reason that Montauk has come to the forefront of people's minds is because of Stranger Things. Yes. Can you talk about how, as a researcher, this has helped you or hurt you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it mostly helps because of the popularity. I mean, most people would not be so into it if it weren't for the show. And because of the show, I've been able to go on shows and share what I have. I guess without the interest, I wouldn't really be able to tell people about the information or the research that I have at all. Why do you think it's important for the truth about the Montauk Project to come to light? Uh, I just think that for so many reasons, if something like that, if it were, if everything in it were true, it would be something on a massive scale that just allowing something like that to be buried and to stay secret for so long. I mean, it would be, I think it would be just, if we allow somebody to do that much, then what's to stop anybody from just taking it to levels, you know, that we that could destroy our planet, basically. Uh, you know, this is talking about strictly black projects that we we can't really, you know, affirm are true or not. And that's the thing. If you don't shine the light on it, they can release things in the news. Like, we did this, you know, in 1960, and people will just flip the page and not realize the context of what they just told you. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, though, about, you know, bringing up the idea of, oh, well, that happened back in the 60s. Yeah. And the fact that people don't always connect that something that was done decades ago, like if they were willing to do that decades ago, what do you think they're willing to do now with the technology we have now? Exactly. So where are we exactly? Well, I think the question is when. Are there other spiritual communities around the Montauk area that are connections between the land and other spiritual communities? Not many that I know of, but I heard that there are, you know, some kind of, some earth-practicing religions, basically. You know, I did read there was a coven there that practiced once. Um, 
different people that may that I don't I'm not familiar with, but I did come across that in my reading a few times that there were certain people that would use the land for spiritual reasons. But I don't know of any in particular. I would imagine that it's like a really energetic place, an awesome place to go, no matter what you believe in. Uh, I could see people using it for sure. I think they said in 1917, Aleister Crowley even was hiding out in Montauk. And he said it was one of his favorite, most magical spiritual places that he's ever seen. I know people come out here to get married all the time. So yeah, I would say it's still being used for spiritual reasons. I think they even have a wedding trail at Camp Hero. It's like the part of the New York State Parks. Oh. And they have like a place for wedding oh, photographs. Yeah. So definitely. The, the government project and wedding trail. Yeah. Do you love government conspiracy <laughs> theories and you want to get married? Yeah. Come to the Camp Hero wedding trail. <laughs> That's right. So in regards to your research, what, if you can pick one, what has been the most mind-blowing piece of evidence you have discovered in all your research? Oh, wow. That's a really good one, too. Uh, let's see. I would say one of the most mind-blowing things is are the LSD rooms or the acid rooms, as they call them. Finding the the house that they forgot to tear down with upstairs is two different kinds of wallpaper and two different kinds of paint jobs that are definitely psychedelic in nature. Now, if you're talking about people being on the base after it was supposed to be closed, I would say finding uh, food records that we found went back a few times for and um, giant bills for food shipped to Montauk and like in the thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars per month. And we find all these things and we're like, oh my God, you know, where, where are these things? Where is all this food going? And uh, why are they hidden in this, you know, back little shack? And so we ended up taking them and then we got chased. And when they rolled up on us, they came speeding towards us in SUVs with the horns on. So we threw these things up in the air as like a distraction and ran. And we were lucky to get out of there, like zigzagging through buildings until we got out. But now, years later, I, I read stories of people who found the same checks. A girl wrote about them in her blog. She found a bunch of checks to like Boeing for like zero cents and things that just seemed like a scam or that they were shipping food there in the late 80s for some reason. I found uh, about eight. What's or, the f Real quickly, yeah. was the food canned food or fresh food? Uh, it didn't say like itemized, you know, I didn't itemize the items. It just had like a total bill and uh, food services. For um, food. Yeah, there were food companies shipping and billing Montauk Air Force Base. And they had, which was supposed to be closed at the time. This is like 1987, the bills I remember. And uh, there was just endless amounts of these bills for months and months, for years of, of these things. And it was in like a little a cafeteria building that was locked up and it had like styrofoam plates and aluminum food trays all over. And at first we just went in there, we were like looking through everything and then down buried under a desk in a cardboard box we pulled out after like moving a bunch of stuff off the top of it, we found this box and just in a file order, you know, and we were looking through and pulling them out and there's just so many, so much money, we couldn't believe it. And uh, so we kept a few, we, we hid them, came back for them. And then when we finally got them, we weren't able to hold on to them, unfortunately, to get fully out of the base before we lost them. But people mentioned finding them exactly where I threw them. Other people that wrote blogs, they came and found the checks right where I threw them. And other people found them in the very same building I found them in and wrote about them, how, how shady it was to find all these checks. And uh, another story called um, 
God, if I could only remember the name of the title, it's really worth a read. Basically, it's a it's an exciting story that's actually crazy. So this guy pulls up and he gets extremely angry at these people who were near his building where we found those food records. And he starts flipping out on them and um, screaming at them that he's keeping stuff in that building for some reason, like storing them. And they said that they traced it back that he was a guy that owned a local restaurant, which now it's like tying in with the food. This restaurant is right by the lighthouse, and it's uh, like a summertime food uh, concession area. But now that I look, that building is actually in a former military building. It used to be part of the base in some form or another, and uh, they turned it into a restaurant. And uh, long story short is there's some kind of shadiness going on with this food ordering. I don't know what's... That was pretty exciting to find as far as evidence. See, my brain goes two different ways on that. My brain either thinks, one... They were doing some kind of training there that nobody knew about. Yeah. And so they had to have a bunch of food there. Or two, because it's not itemized, that Camp Hero is the ultimate fallout shelter. And they just have it all stocked and ready to go. And that's also why the power's on. Yes. That's actually a brilliant thought. There were rumors of time travel and mind control on this base. I really want evidence and proof. What was the thing that surprised you the most about filming your episode of the Mysteries Dakota television show? I was pretty surprised to just see the um, other people that they found along the way, especially um, Joe, who works at the base uh, maintenance. And uh, I did speak to him once or twice. I saw him around a few places and uh, we briefly talked, but I didn't realize that he had that much of a backstory and, and involvement with the base. You know, when I spoke to him, I didn't, he didn't really, you know, reveal everything, obviously, because it's, you know, some personal stuff. But I was very surprised to see the way that uh, his bosses basically handled the situation almost in a threatening manner. That was very surprising to me, uh, even on camera, that they would do that. Yeah, Joe actually claims that he might be a Montauk boy. And what do you feel about his claims you know, they're interesting. I don't like to, like, you know, I don't want to shoot down anybody's, um, you know, what they swear by and uh, their personal experience at all. And of course, it's a similar story to a lot of the people that I've heard this, you know, that themselves say that they're also part of the project. One of the things that really surprised me is when we were talking about time travel, they basically asked me um, what I thought about time travel. And I said that it takes a tremendous amount of energy, almost, you know, energy off the scale that we can't really produce. And later on, he suggested that the humans themselves were the source of the energy, like humans were batteries. And I thought, you know, there's one thing science may be missing somewhere along the way is some kind of biological energy of some sort that we just don't understand that could be uh, to that level. I mean, that's one thing I had never thought of. I thought that was interesting. And on your next trip out for research, what do you hope you find? Uh, I have some ideas in mind of... What I'm looking for, I'm hoping to find uh, long-lost structures that aren't on maps and stuff that I know exist. Do you hope the claims about time travel are true? Yes and no. I mean, I think it's, of course, time travel would be awesome. I just worry that we are not responsible or mature enough to handle the uh, the paradoxes and the Pandora's boxes and the all the kinds of things we can mess up, basically. <laughs> And then one last question. If you could travel back in time, who would you travel back to meet? I'd say Nikola Tesla. Ah, Nikola Tesla. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's the root of many of these ideas or technologies. So 
I would go, probably go straight to the source and ask him. <laughs> Brian Minnick, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Mysteries Decoded podcast and talking the Montauk Project with us. It has truly been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you as well. I, I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I always like talking about Montauk, so um, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I really hope you enjoyed decoding the Montauk Project, time travel, and mind control with us. And I look forward to you joining us next time to decode our next mystery. The Mysteries Decoded podcast is brought to you by the CW Podcast Network and is hosted and produced by me, Darcy Staniforth. Our executive producer is Jen Titus. Our audio engineer is Joel Smith. Our editor and audio producer is Joshua Sterling Manley. 